The reading for this morning, the scripture reading for this morning is taken from the first book of Samuel, 1 Samuel chapter 1, and we will be reading the verses 1 to 20, 1 Samuel chapter 1, and you'll be able to find that on page 310 of your pew Bible. Now, there was a certain man of Ramathaim Zophim, of the mountains of Ephraim, and his name was Elkanah, the son of Jeroham, the son of Elihu, the son of Tohu, the son of Zuf, an Ephraimite. And he had two wives, and the name of the one was Hannah, and the name of the other was Penina. Penina had children, but Hannah had no children. This man went up from his city yearly to worship and sacrifice to the Lord of hosts in Shiloh. Also, the two sons of Eli, Hophni and Phinehas, the priests of the Lord, were there. And whenever the time came for Elkanah to make an offering, he would give portions to Penina, his wife, and to all her sons and daughters. But to Hannah, he would give a double portion, for he loved Hannah, although the Lord had closed her womb. And her rival also provoked her severely to make her miserable because the Lord had closed her womb. So it was, year by year, when she went up to the house of the Lord that she provoked her. Therefore she wept and did not eat. Then Elkanah, her husband, said to her, Hannah, why do you weep? Why do you not eat? And why is your heart grieved? Am I not better to you than ten sons? So Hannah arose after they had finished eating and drinking in Shiloh. Now Eli the priest was sitting on the seat by the doorpost of the tabernacle of the Lord. And she was in bitterness of soul and prayed to the Lord and wept in anguish. Then she made a vow and said, O Lord of hosts, if you will indeed look on the affliction of your maidservant and remember me and not forget your maidservant, but will give your maidservant a male child, then I will give him to the Lord all the days of his life, and no razor shall come upon his head. And it happened, as she continued praying before the Lord, that Eli watched her mouth. Now, Hannah spoke in her heart. Only her lips moved, but her voice was not heard. Therefore, Eli thought she was drunk. So Eli said to her, How long will you be drunk? Put your wine away from you. But Hannah answered and said, No, my Lord. I am a woman of sorrowful spirit. I have drunk neither wine nor intoxicating drink, but have poured out my soul before the Lord. Do not consider your servant a wicked woman, for out of the abundance of my complaints and grief I have spoken until now. Then Eli answered and said, Go in peace. And the God of Israel grant your petition, which you have asked, for him, asked of him. And she said, let your maidservant find favor in your sight. So the woman went her way and ate, and her face was no longer sad. Then they rose early in the morning and worshipped before the Lord and returned and came to their house at Ramah. And Elkanah knew Hannah his wife, and the Lord remembered her. So it came to pass in the process of time that Hannah conceived and bore a son and called his name Samuel, saying, Because I have asked for him from the Lord. So far the word of God. 
That will be our text as well. Verse 20, it came to pass in the process of time that Hannah conceived and bore a son and called his name Samuel, saying, because I have asked for him from the Lord. Beloved congregation of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, the Lord hears. Do you believe that? The Lord hears. We live in a world that's filled with one-way media. People speak to us through the radio. They speak to us through TV, through books. People bestow wisdom and folly on us through mass media, direct and guide us through blogs, or drown us in a flood of information through commercials. Advertisements and billboards scream for our attention as we walk down the street. Our world is filled with people who want to get their message across to us. And in most cases, it's a one-way street. We're so used to faceless corporations speaking to us and people dictating to us in a million different ways what we ought to think, feel, or desire that we begin to tune it out. We think it virtually impossible for the average Joe to speak to these enormous and powerful figures. We feel if we were to contact them, our voice would be lost in a sea of a million other voices who are also trying to get in touch with them. To some of you, it may feel that it's the same way with God. He's sitting on a throne in heaven far away dictating the course of history. He's got millions of prayers coming to him every moment. How will he hear mine? Will he bother with me? In our passage today, we will see that while God is a God who is indeed in charge of the overarching story of history, he's also more than that. And we'll see that under the following theme. God sends a prophet as a symbol of hope in the close of one era and the beginning of another. In the opening words of our text, we read, So it came to pass in the process of time that Hannah conceived and bore a son. These weren't easy days into which to bear a son. The nation of Israel into which Samuel was born was going through difficult times. And these difficult times were of their own making. Have you ever had that? That you were suffering from the consequence of something that you've done that was your own fault? even years ago or decades ago? The nation of Israel had put themselves into a seriously troubling situation. God had commanded them to push out or destroy all the nations that inhabited the land into which they were coming. And there was a very good reason for this. The nations were very wicked. We read in Genesis 15, verse 16, that part of the reason that Israel was enslaved for 400 years although that was only a small part of it, was that the wickedness of the land that they were going to invade had not yet reached its fullness. But with Israel entering the land, God was using them as an instrument to carry out his punishment on a people whose wickedness had reached its fullness. A people who were terribly evil. Having listed the sins that he especially hated in Leviticus chapter 18, God went went on to say in verse 24 of that chapter, Do not defile yourselves with any of these things, 
For by all these the nations are defiled, which I am casting out before you. For the land is defiled. Therefore I visit the punishment of its iniquity on it, and the land vomits out its inhabitants. Their entry into the land was meant to be a purification of the land. And God had warned them that if they didn't purify the land, there would be consequences. Nations that they were meant to destroy would corrupt them with their false idols. God warned them. They would encourage them to sacrifice their children as offerings to the gods Chemosh and Molech. They would lead them into sexual sins under the fertility gods of Asherah and Baal. Idolatry, adultery, incest, and child sacrifice were only the beginning of the sins that they had piled up to heaven. And these nations, if they weren't dealt with, would lead Israel back into spiritual slavery. God warned them during that time if they chose to descend back into spiritual slavery, tying themselves to wicked practices through religion. He would let them experience physical slavery as a reflection of what was happening in their souls. We can see that today, too. Quite often, this happens. God would punish them by means of other nations and have them groan under a yoke of physical oppression that was a mirror of the bondage that they were freely subjecting their souls to. And yet, they did not finish driving out these nations. Now, is that not the situation that we often find ourselves in today as well? As Christians, we are waging a war within ourselves. But there are many who, instead of putting to death their sinful natures, only strive to mostly put them to death. They only put to death those parts of their sinful nature that are most inconvenient to them and have the biggest negative impacts on their lives in the past. Those sins which have a minimal impact, though, often seem to require more effort than they're worth. That or there's something that's actually kind of pleasant about them. And so instead of getting rid of them, we'll make a sort of alliance with that sin or behavior. We'll let it out of the box occasionally. It will survive, and we will feel like we benefit from it. It's all under control, right? We read in the book of Judges, just prior to Samuel, Judges comes, and then Ruth, and then Samuel. We read in the book of Judges a list of the failures of Israel in driving people out of the land. In many cases, they just found it easier to make covenants with the people. Putting the Canaanites under tribute, benefiting from them instead of destroying them. And so putting themselves under the corrupting influence of the people that they were meant to replace. As a consequence, the angel of the Lord came to Israel and spoke to them, saying in Judges 2, the verses 1 to 4, I led you up from Egypt and brought you to the land of which I swore to your fathers and said, I will never break my covenant with you. And you shall make no covenant with the inhabitants of this land. You shall tear down their altars, but you have not obeyed my voice. 
Why have you done this? Therefore I also said, I will not drive them out before you, but they shall be thorns in your side, and their gods will be a snare to you. So it was when the angel of the Lord spoke these words to all the children of Israel that the people lifted up their voice and wept. And ever since that moment in time, the nations that they were meant to replace truly did become a thorn in the side of the people. We read how time and time again they raided the people and they put them under an iron yoke. They subjugated and taxed the Israelites, treating them as a subject nation that they could take at will. And Israel was left in a desperate situation. So, too, often our own so-called little sins that we make alliances with rise up too, don't they? Thinking that everything is okay, our life carries on until suddenly and unexpectedly it springs up and it bears bitter fruit and you're left there sitting thinking, how did it get to this? That's the thing with compromise. You never see its consequences coming. You think that you can get away with it, but sin comes to light. Sin always comes to light. And sadly, it often becomes the most vividly clear when God allows our sin to trap us and bind us for a time, letting our comfortable lives come crashing down around us. Now, time after time, Israel cried out. They hated the consequences of their actions. They spoke well of what they would do if they were delivered. They promised God everything. And then God delivered them because the Lord hears. He would send a judge to set his people free and show them by using the physical freedom that they received as a mirror, the true freedom that obedience would offer. He was showing them the true freedom that turning to him and resting in him would offer. For a time all would go well, but then they would fall back into sin and its consequences caught up with them. Time after time, Israel's judges would rescue them and time after time, they would fall back into sin despite all of their promises to God and it seemed that each time was worse than the last. It had reached its pinnacle with the priesthood of Eli. Eli was supposed to be the spiritual leader of the people of Israel, but he had two very corrupt sons. And we read that these sons, Hophni and Phinehas, in verse 3, were the priests of the Lord. These two very corrupt sons whom he allowed to continue in office. Israel was crying out with need for a better judge, for a more lasting deliverance. Many had fallen from God's ways, but there were still faithful ones among them. There were still those hoping for the deliverance of Israel. And those were people who were hoping for stability and deliverance from the constant raids. They were people who were hoping for deliverance. They were hoping for stability and freedom from those constant raids. And they were also hoping that the fractured nature of Israel would be repaired. 
And the family of Hannah was one example of that. Elkanah, the head of the family, he took lead in family worship by taking his family once a year to worship and sacrifice to the Lord in Shiloh, which was the place of worship to God that was in this time. They were praying for the day when God would take these splintered tribes and form them into a great nation as he had promised so many years before. They were praying for a time of rest. Canaan was meant to be the promised land where Israel could find rest. And one day it would be that place for a time. But in the meantime, they would wait with patient expectation. They would look to the Lord as their God. They would come before Him in repentance. And they would faithfully worship Him. Elkanah's devotion to God was highlighted by his generosity. We read in verse 24 of our passage that he offered up three bulls. Your translation might say a three-year-old bull, which was still a huge investment for the day. And one ephah of flour and a skin of wine. This was a significant sacrifice even for a moderately wealthy family in that day. And it showed how Elkanah was clearly modeling a pious life for the members of his family. Sadly, however, even though he had a religious family, his was a religious family, it was not one without its own share of sorrows. His wife Hannah, whom he loved, was unable to bear children. It was a source of grief for both of them, but it would have been one that was especially felt by Hannah. According to tradition, If one wife was not able to bear a child, then the man would take another wife to produce a child who would carry on the family line. And if we look back in in the history of the people of God, we already saw that being attempted under Abraham with his wife Sarah, who was unable to bear a child, so he took on Hagar. We could see that with Jacob, although that was a slightly different situation. But it was something that happened more often in the ancient Near East. The fact that Peninnah was in Hannah's life would likely have been a daily reminder of her inability to bear children. But it was even worse than that. Because Peninnah could see that Hannah was the favored wife, it made her extremely jealous. And this seems to have reached its peak at the time of the yearly festival in Shiloh. Elkanah, knowing how much it grieved his wife not to have children to celebrate with her, gave her a double portion of food at the feast. He did this to show that it didn't matter to him if she had children or not. He loved her deeply anyways. But this embittered Penina, and understandably so, she had come in as the second wife. She had borne children and carried on the family line for her husband. But for all that, Could she get him to look at her in the same way that he looked at Hannah? And so she despised Hannah. She tormented Hannah with the only weapon she knew how to use. She plagued her because the Lord had closed her womb. Can you imagine this? Perhaps there are those of you who have struggled with having children. Maybe it's in your past or maybe it's a struggle that you or someone 
you know currently has. It's deeply painful for couples who struggle with childlessness. And this constant provocation meant that Hannah didn't even have the appetite to eat the very meal that was meant to show the double portion of her husband's love for her. The constant provocation of Penina broke her down inside. Now, one of the worst places to be is to feel completely and utterly alone. Elkanah could share a little in Hannah's pain, but he couldn't feel the full effects of what she was experiencing because he had children, children by Penina. Hannah, however, was completely alone in this. She wasn't even safe in her own home, and that's a terrible thing to experience. It made her feel completely and utterly alone. And so she prayed. She prayed to the God of her nation year after year after year, begging for a child. Like the widow who comes before the judge again and again in the parable of Jesus, she came before the throne of God time and time again. This ought to be an example to us. It might be that God chooses to say no or not yet, but take your example from this, that you might, as Paul writes in Philippians 4, verse 6, in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. Despite all of her sorrows, Hannah didn't pray for herself alone. Despite all of her terrible personal circumstances, she didn't let that alone govern her prayers. Hannah knew that she was part of a bigger whole, And her present circumstances, her present difficulties were in a way a reflection of the state of Israel as a whole. She desired a child to deliver her from her current circumstance. But she knew that as much as she needed a child, the nation of Israel needed a deliverer. And so she made a vow, O Lord of hosts, if you will indeed look on the affliction of your maidservant and remember me. And not forget your maidservant, but will give your maidservant a male child, then I will give him to the Lord all the days of his life, and no razor shall come upon his head. The child that she describes is one who's set apart in service for the people of God. He very closely mirrors the picture of a Nazarite. And so it becomes clear in her prayer that she is asking for a child who will be very special. Think back to the last Nazarite who was mentioned in the Bible, Samson. Despite all of his weaknesses, did he not work powerfully for the Lord to deliver God's people? So too, Hannah desires to have a child who will go beyond delivering herself alone. In her prayer, she prays that her deliverance from her present circumstances can be for her people's good and for her God's glory. And it's at that moment that God chooses to answer her, speaking through the mouth of Eli. That's certainly something to think about, isn't it, brothers and sisters? Do you pray for deliverance from your personal circumstance for the sake of increasing your own comfort? Or do you pray that through your circumstances and deliverance of your circumstances, it could be used for God's glory, for his people's good in your suffering? 
Hannah prayed and God heard and answered. It wasn't instant. It wasn't as if the moment that she changed her perspective that she received an answer. It was in the process of time. But it was an answer from God. We read, So it came to pass in the process of time that Hannah conceived and bore a son and called his name Samuel, saying, Because I have asked for him from the Lord. This child didn't come as a happy circumstance. This child came because of God. And that came out in his name. Samuel means heard of God. He was a living, walking reminder to the people that God was a God who heard prayers. A people who had for so long neglected their God, who had walked far away from Him. This child's birth was a reminder that God cared for His people and that God would hear His nation if they returned to Him and cried out to Him. Israel didn't know it yet, but Samuel's birth was a sign of a shift in the Lord's dealings with them. He was moving forward to fulfill the next step of his promise for them. Samuel's, sign, Samuel's birth was a sign that despite the faithlessness of his people, God was going to move forward with them and grant them leadership that would unite them and lead them in faithfulness. He was moving forward in redemptive history, moving him on to the next stage of fulfillment of his covenant promises. His actions here were the beginning signs that not only was God there for his people, and not only would he bring them some measure of earthly peace in this land, he was moving forward in his plan to continue his redemption of his people, and moving forward in his plan to grant them a lasting eternal peace. What a comfort to us the birth of this child is. What a comfort it is. Because as we look back on the history of the nation of Israel, and as we look back and we see it as, as a mirror of our own lives, the constant falling down and the constant being raised up again, and then falling down again and then being raised up again, as we see our own personal wanderings through the journeys of Israel throughout history, we can now see here that God doesn't give up on His people despite all of that. They had embraced the nations around them. They had let these little sins that had grown up among them overwhelm them. They had experienced the discipline of the Lord. They had experienced His displeasure with their actions. And yet, despite all of that, the Lord still reached out to His people. The Lord still reached out and through answering the prayer of this one heartbroken, lonely woman, he affected the fate of a nation. He was faithful to his people, even when they were faithless. He's faithful to us, even when we are faithless. And he shows that he's there. If his people turn back to him, he's there to answer them and be there for him. Today we've seen that this symbol of hope, this child who was born, touched not only a nation, but it was also 
a hope by which God gave hope to a lonely young woman. Samuel's birth as the fulfillment of that hope was the foreshadowing of another miraculous birth that was coming ahead. God was moving forward in his plan to preserve for himself a people and through that people to prepare the way for the one who was the hope of the ages. The one whom not only one nation would put their hope in, but the one in whom all of history would put their hope. When we look back on the birth, the miraculous birth of Samuel, we see the picture of the Savior. We experience the fullness of the grace and mercy of God that the people were able to have only a small taste of, although they could taste it already then. And we see through this a God who is not only one who answers prayer, but we see that he is the one who answers prayer. And today, looking ahead through Jesus Christ, through the resurrection, ascension of his son, we have this made all the more certain for ourselves. More than that, we can see that he has sent his spirit who, even when we can't find the words to express our sorrow, intercedes for us with groans that words cannot express. Our prayers ascend to heaven, and they are heard because we have a Savior who has guaranteed that for us. Our sorrows are eased. Our burdens are lifted, all because we bring them, all because we can bring them before our God who hears. Now, perhaps you won't grant us a child in our childlessness. Perhaps you won't immediately lift us up from the darkness of our depression. Perhaps you won't lift us from the thrall of anxiety. But he will hear us and be near us. And if we turn to him, he will glorify his name through that, our suffering. For the sake of Christ his Son, he will listen to us when we call on him and he'll grant us the peace that he is watching over us even during this. As our Lord Jesus Christ said, look at the birds of the air, for they neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns, yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not of much more value than they? Our God watches over us. Our God hears us. And our God provides for us in Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ, the hope of all ages, has promised this. He has secured it for us. And he'll hold us fast as he continues to carry out his plan of redemptive salvation that he already showed one more aspect of here in the first chapter of Samuel. He'll continue that plan of redemptive salvation, redemptive history to the end of time, bringing in those who are his one soul at a time until he ushers us into the peace of the final promised land in eternity. Amen.